Hey, good morning. Hey, it is a, a pleasure to be here. It's an honor to be back with you guys again. Uh, my name is Matt Van Zandt, and I am a parish leader over at Sojourn Heights. Uh, you should be asking the question, why is a parish leader up here? Um, and as I said last time I was here, we were still trying to figure why that out, why that is. But then I came to the realization as to why it is that I get to be up here, and it's because the majority of the people that left to go with Taylor um, uh, here at Sojourn Galleria came out of the Monty Beach Parish, a parish which I co-lead, and uh, so I figured as a five foot eight guy, I can't really hold many things over, uh, over people, but this is one thing I can't hold over somebody and tell them, hey, I'd like to preach a couple times, so here I am. Uh, but this time, it's really nice to have Taylor here because last time he was sipping on an umbrella drink in Maui uh, while he kindly gave me the task of going through an easy chapter and an easy book, you know, Job 16, I know all you guys got it memorized. Um, and I had the honor, though, of being in this pulpit and sharing God's Word with people that I love so dearly, uh, which is you guys. Um, there's so many people in this room uh, that I love so dearly, so many of you that I used to talk with regularly, I've written into the daily lives of your family, I was there when some of your children were born, uh, new people, uh, we, we rejoiced in victories, we shared in sufferings attended funerals, um, and I just watched as the Lord knit us so close together. At, the, there was, at that time, I couldn't think of my life without many of you guys, and now things have changed. There are new relationships that have formed. There are new babies that have been born. There are new people taking the place of Uncle Matt, which, let's be honest, nobody takes the place of Uncle Matt. Uh, new people that are of first importance, and all of that is a right and a godly thing. But I want you guys to know that Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 when he is separated from the Thessalonians. And he says this. He says, though we were separated, uh, we were separated in person, but not in heart. And a little further down, he says this. He says, for what is our hope or our crown or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Sojourn Gallery, I know I only live 10 or 15 miles down the road in the Heights, and I see some of you uh, still fairly, re- fairly regularly, uh, but coming back to this place is such a sweet gift to me, and it's because of you. The Thessalonians were Paul's people. He loved them so much, so much so that he says that when, if Jesus were to come back, he'd run over to Jesus, and he'd say, hey, look at them. Look at the Thessalonians. Look at their faithfulness, Right? It's like that dad who watches his son score a soccer goal or something, and all of a sudden he runs around like acting like his kid's like the next Cristiano Ronaldo or Messi or something like that, right? It's kind of annoying, right? But the dad is so proud, and that is Paul's joy over the Thessalonians, and this is my joy for you guys, over you guys. I love you, and it's an honor to be here. But not only just to be here, but to preach God's word. I never want to take this opportunity lightly. I never want to think for a second that I've earned this place. This is a great gift that comes from the kindness of the Lord, but also a great responsibility and one that I take very seriously. So much of my testimony has come in settings like this when men who faithfully preached God's word uh, and God's word cut into the very darkest areas of my life, the very fears that I had, the very uh, hurts that I had, and by the power of the Spirit, there was, it, the Spirit of the Lord brought faith, comfort, healing, peace, 
and broke chains of sin that my heart was in. And he showed me that the greatest thing that I could ever have is Christ. That is what I'm hoping for you this morning, for you guys. That the Lord would pierce you with his word, by his spirit. And that you'd be spurred on to walk in faith and obedience before your God as you leave this place today. That your heart would overflow in worship to Christ as you gaze upon his beauty. As I mentioned last time I was here, there is no task I am more unworthy of than this. But there's no task that could be a greater honor than this, and that is to preach God's word. So with that said, let me pray just very briefly. Uh, Father, thank you for this time. Uh, Thank you for these people. Thank you for this opportunity. Uh, I pray that you would use me this morning uh, for your glory, that there would be men and women in this place, those who know you, that their hearts would be encouraged, that you would increase their faith, those who don't, that they would come into the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Lord, help me calm my fears, calm my nerves, calm my anxieties, and use me in this time as a vessel for your glory. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, many of you know this, and last time I was here, I mentioned this, but one of the most difficult things that I've ever gone through in my life was the loss of my brother David. This past Thursday, whew, this past Thursday, February 9th, 2017, was the six-year anniversary of my brother's passing. Six years. It's gone so fast. And so many of you were kind to send me messages and notes saying that you were praying for our family, that you loved us. It was sweet. It really was. However, in all of this, it's always interesting when this day comes around to see what people say. Because they always assume that it's something that you either like don't want to talk about or it's kind of out of bounds to talk about. And they just don't, they don't fully know how to approach the situation. You see, death has a way of making people feel uncomfortable. Just like the famous theologian Woody Allen says, uh, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. See, I get this. We all know that death is a reality, but actually like getting into the nitty-gritty of it and when it's a reality in front of you, it just kind of gives you the heebie-jeebies, right? And every year I always end up sharing with people something along the lines of this line. You know, whoever said we were promised 80 years? As if once you reach that marker, then it's like okay to die, Right? I know we hear this a lot with people talking about their grandparents as they pass, like, oh, I'm so sorry, what happened? They're like, well, they were just old, right? But this gives us a false reality because the reality is is that life is fragile. Tomorrow is not promised. Death is is a reality for all of us. And each year when this day comes around, it reminds me this, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. It helps to clarify things in my head. Death communicates things to us, and we should pay attention to that. It helps to clarify things in my head, and it also helps, or it, it makes me ask difficult questions about my life. And some of those questions I want to ask you guys here this morning. What are you doing with your life? What are you giving yourself to? Why are you spending your life the way that you are? all of your intellect, all your resources, all your time that you have, what are you pouring it into? If you knew life were to end tomorrow, would you pour into the same things today as you would without that knowledge? Taking those questions one layer layer deeper, 
What do you hope to receive from these things? What payoff or return are you looking for from giving yourself to these things? Simply put, what is in it for you? You see, this morning as we resume in our series in the book of Matthew, a series that Sojourn has entitled Epiphany, uh, we will see in our text this morning that Peter sees an interaction take place with Jesus, and he's going to ask a question along the same lines as the question as I just asked you. And Jesus is going to respond, and he's going to give us a window into what the kingdom of heaven is like and what's in it for those who follow Christ. Now, see, in this, in this part of the book of Matthew, there's actually a consistency that's going on Whereas people are coming up to Jesus and asking him questions about the kingdom of heaven. And these questions have to do, oh, sorry, just said that. Uh, you don't have to turn, you don't have to turn there. But in Matthew 18, we see that the disciples approach Jesus and they ask him this question. They say, hey, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus teaches them that it's not the highly successful, it's not the self-made, it's not the socially popular. But it's the people who humble themselves like little children who are greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Then in Matthew 19, 16, we see the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he asks this. He says, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And we learn here that the greatest in the kingdom are not the wealthy, which was a sure sign of God's blessing at this time. But Jesus goes on to teach that the rich, uh, to teach the rich young ruler that those who are greatest in the kingdom of heaven are those who give up all to follow Christ. Then as you look over past our text, you see in Matthew 20, 20, where James and John's mother come to Jesus and ask Jesus if he would give her sons the honor to sit at the right or left of Jesus. As some of you are in here thinking, if my mom were alive during that time, she would have been the one that was asking that question, Right? You'd have to go, Mom, God, why'd you ask Jesus that? Right? You would have had a hilariously embarrassing interaction. They have a hilariously embarrassing interaction between their mom and Jesus, something that none of us ever thought would ever be our reality, but probably neither did John and James. See, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven in this is that it is not about who you know who who goes to bat for you but it's about whom the Father has chosen and prepared a place for. You see, in today's text, we're picking up right after Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler and before, uh, the, before John James's mom going and talking to Jesus, in which this encounter with the rich young ruler, the disciples were on hand to witness, something I didn't realize about the story of the rich young ruler prior to studying this text. And Jesus is about to tell a parable here in a few verses that continues with the kingdom of heaven. But really, it's a continuation of an answer to a question that Peter, one of the disciples, is about to ask. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open it up. We're going to be in, start in Matthew chapter 19, and we're going to begin in verse 27. Let me give you a little bit of context. Remember that Jesus had just told this young man, the rich young ruler, that if he wanted to enter the kingdom of heaven, he should go sell all of his possessions and come and follow him. And he walked away with his head down. Why? Because he had great possessions. So Peter was watching this whole thing. And he responds with this. Now hold on, let me give you a little side note. Okay? You gotta love Peter. Okay? And Peter's always the guy who says things that everybody else is thinking. 
right? So he's about to do that again, right? But it's one of the greatest lines in the New Testament. I think it's in, it's Mark, I think it's chapter 9, but in the, in the account of the uh, transfiguration, there's a wonderful line in which it, sa- it says this. It says, and Peter, not knowing what to say, says. Gosh, you got to love Peter, right? Love Peter. Okay, so let's go. Matthew 19, verse 27. Then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? So Peter just watching the rich young ruler, he's looking on and he sees that Jesus says, if you give away everything and you follow me, right, you will have, uh, you will, that, that is what you need to do to enter the kingdom of heaven. And, and Homie watches this rich young ruler walk away with all of his cash. So he still had these earthly possessions. And Peter's looking around going, man, I ain't got anything left. I left it all. I left it all for you, Jesus. I wasn't told to leave everything, but I willingly left it. So I have a question for you, Jesus. What's left for us? Those who have left everything. What's in it for us? What's the payoff for those who follow Jesus? What's in it for those who invest their lives to follow the Savior? What's the reward? Keep going. Verse 28 and 29. And Jesus says to them, said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Now, there's some confusing stuff in there about the judging of the 12 tribes of Israel, and so I uh, actually talked to Taylor beforehand. He said he'd love for you to come up to him, and he'll explain all that to you after this service. That's a lie. I didn't actually tell him that, but uh, that's for smart people like Taylor, but essentially, uh, that is an end times reference that uh, we're not going to get into, but I can tell you this. I can tell you this. Jesus begins to answer this question, and he says this. He says that you will be together with me. You will be with me in the kingdom. And it says here in the new world, it's actually translated in the regeneration, which is in the renewal of all things, that you will be with me. And that all who have said, all who have suffered and left for the, all for the sake of Christ, that they will receive a hundredfold. And they will inherit eternal life. Now, up to this point, Peter's tracking with Jesus, right? He's like, okay, that's what I wanted to hear, right? It's all worth it, right? He's good. And then Jesus kind of goes ahead and throws in this little cryptic statement here at the end, which I, just, I would have loved to have seen Peter's face when he said this. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Now, if you look down in, verse, in chapter 20, the very last verse that we're going to be talking about here today, 20 verse 16, it says the same thing, basically. So the last will be first, and the first last. And so what we see is that these two statements are bookended, and everything that's in between, everything that is in between is the finishing of the answer of Peter's question. 
So we're going to be looking to this parable to figure out what it is saying about this cryptic statement. The first will be last, and the last will be first. Now, I'm going to go ahead and reread this parable. Um, the parables, parables are interesting. This is the first time I've ever taught a parable. Well, it's only the second time I've ever taught in this context. But first time I've ever taught a parable. That's a true statement. Um, and they're different. I love Paul's writings. It's so easy. I can just go line by line, just kind of do this. But parables aren't really aren't meant to be re- uh, read and explained line by line. You really need to read the whole thing, kind of gather all the details. And then what happens is, is you kind of can gather a central message. You not kind of can. You can gather a central me- message. So I want to read this parable one more time. And then I'm normally not a guy that likes to go with three points, but we're going to have three points. So let me read. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you too go into the vineyard. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, uh, each of them received a, denari- a denarius. When the, now when those hired first, now when those far, hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last, wor- these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, as we have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am, not, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first will be last. Now, as I mentioned earlier, so normally in parables, what you want to do is you want to read the whole thing. And there's normally one main point. So what I'm doing is I have, I have taking, not taking my own advice, I have three points, but I want to know that the, the first one is really the main point of this parable, and then I have a couple other ones. So if you're a note taker like I am, these three points, the first one's going to be the kingdom of heaven pays. The kingdom of heaven pays. The second one, the kingdom of heaven pays every worker equally. And the third one is going to be the kingdom of heaven pays on God's radical generosity. So let's begin with the first point. We see in this parable that the landowner is a symbolic representation. Am I? Did I lose sound? Okay, no, we're good. Am I on? Okay. The landowner is a symbolic representation to God. The vineyard is, freak, is a frequently used biblical image depicting the people of God or the kingdom of God. And so the landowner goes out selecting workers for his vineyard. And so it is with God with his kingdom. 
The kingdom is always expanding as God is going out and gathering to himself his own people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. But before a person is brought into the kingdom, the the parable here says that he's idle. That the worker goes out and finds the workers, and they're standing in the marketplace doing nothing. Standing around. They're idle. Now, if you've ever seen a place where day workers gather, they're not... Uh, they're not doing anything unless an employer comes by to pick them up. Life outside the kingdom, life outside the vineyard, it does not pay. It is not rewarded. It's not fruitful or productive. But those brought into the kingdom who labor for the Lord are paid with the rich rewards of the kingdom. This is the main point of the parable. And we see it clearly in chapter 19, verse 29, when Jesus says this, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Now, you may be here this morning thinking, why should I follow Jesus? Why should I give my life to Christ? Why should I devote myself to him? Or maybe, more likely, many of you are asking, why should I continue to devote myself to him? Why should I continue to give myself to Christ? Why should I continue to walk obediently with him? You see, though, you may be saying this because all that you perceive in following Christ is that it is all about the cost and that there's no pay for following Jesus. Pay attention to what you think about when you think about following Jesus. It's amazing how quick this mind right here does and how quick all of our minds runs to the things that we have to give up. So we get focused so much on the cost. Now let me be clear, it will definitely cost you to follow Christ. In fact, it will cost you everything to follow him. Your life is no longer your own. It has been bought with a price. It now belongs to the Lord. He will be your master. He will be your ruler if you follow him. There will be many things you will give up to follow Jesus. And yet Jesus affirms here that following Christ in the kingdom pays exceedingly more than anything you'll ever give up in this life. And this is what Peter's acknowledging. He gave up everything to follow Jesus. He's acknowledging it cost me everything to serve the Savior. But notice Jesus' response. He doesn't deny the cost, but he affirms the reward. Right? Amen. That they would receive a hundredfold in eternal life. And this is how Jesus understands the riches and the rewards and the blessings of coming and taking his yoke upon us and following Christ. This is no hard task, master. master. This is no slave driver. This is no slumlord. But this is a rich landowner who gives graciously and generously to all who come to him. What then will there be for you? Why should I die to myself and live for Christ? Well, if your life is going to mean anything after this life, it will only come to pay if indeed you enter the kingdom of heaven and follow Christ. Now, the scripture says that some remarkable things must happen in order for someone to get into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says in John 3, 3, when he's talking to Nicodemus, he says, unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom 
of heaven. If there was one place in Scripture where I would love to see an expression on a man's face, it would be Nicodemus after Jesus just said anything, and I really hope his mom was sitting right there, right? Because Jesus looks at him, and he's like, and he looks at his mom, and he's like, I got to go back in there, right? There has to be rebirth. Unless there is a radical change of nature, a radical conversion, a radical turning away from the old life and turning now to Christ, people cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus says in Matthew 18, 3, that unless you become humble like a little child, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Entering the kingdom of heaven pays, but it is a result of the radical work of God in the soul of man. Your soul is to be made new. It is to have God's spirit call out to you and to draw you and to change you and to make you new. To have the spirit of God actually seal you and preserve you for God on the day of his return. But not only to preserve you, but to fill you and to control you and indwell you and produce in you the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control. It is a radical new birth and new change for those who trust and follow Christ. You see, the first payoff in the kingdom of heaven is a new and everlasting life. The first benefit is to have the old life with its sin and its decay and its corruption, to literally have it peeled off of you. I don't, the scripture uses a, a, a couple of different examples, but literally this idea of this old man that you can't shed. Right? It's almost like you're, you're carrying around this ball and chain and you just kind of keep swatting at it, like wanting it to leave. But in this, in this kingdom of heaven, that, that old man is peeled off and from all that death, uh, all that dead skin, what births out of it is new life. Now, one of the greatest privileges I've had is being Uncle Matt to so many kids. And I've been there and I've held kids that are less than 24 hours old and it's just amazing. And just you look at it in that new skin you're like, this is crazy, right? And that's what's going on here. There's new life that is birthed out of old. And to see that, to, and to have that fresh smell of new life in our lives, that is the first result of being in the kingdom of heaven. And that comes by what Jesus has done for us on a cross when he gave himself as a ransom for sin. When he died as an atoning sacrifice for sin, when he became the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world, that's what was happening on the cross. We were idle outside in the marketplace, and the landowner landowner entered into space and time, and he gathered us in the most astounding way. How did he gather us? He gathers us into his life, into life by his death. Have you ever wondered and asked yourself why Jesus had to die? Why he had to hang on a, crucifix, on a crucifix? It was in that death that the wrath of God against the sin of man was being poured out on the Son of God. And it was in that death that God's anger and justice are satisfied. It is in that death where one takes place and bears the punishment, the one that we could not bear, that death, that crucifixion, that burial, That resurrection is what opens the floodgates to the kingdom of heaven and make a life of following Christ of unimaginable reward. The kingdom pays a hundred times 
anything that we would ever give up in this life. In the kingdom, there's forgiveness of sin. Think of your rebellion against God and then think of it wiped away. To have victory over those nagging and entangling sins that keep grabbing you and pulling you and drawing you in directions you don't want to go. The nagging guilt and condemnation of conscience. There's freedom from that in this kingdom. There's reconciliation to God in this kingdom. God has no more wrath, no more anger to those who are in Christ. And flowing from this is the peace of God that comes from, the, that comes from peace with God. Here there's justification before God. Not only the forgiveness of sin, but the presence of righteousness in His sight. Through Christ. Here you are adopted into God's family. Here you're sanctified to God. Here you have all the holiness you, will, you need to see God in, that is given in and through Christ. Here you will have glorification together with God through Christ to share in His nature and His fame on that day. You see the denarius, this is the denarius that's paid for a day's work in the glorious and is the glorious and all-sufficient pay that God graciously gives those who follow his Christ, or who follow, who follow Christ into the kingdom of heaven. And I hope, as my heart is right now, is that you are saying, hallelujah, what a savior. The kingdom of heaven pays. Second point, the kingdom of heaven pays every worker equally. People are entering into the kingdom all the time. God is sovereignly going out and gathering people into his kingdom at all times. Some were gathered early at the crack of dawn, some at the end of the day when God gathered you, whether God grabbed you early or late in in life, his pay to you was not diminished in value. His reward did not shrink because of when you came into the kingdom. Coming in late in life does not lower the reward. And remember this as you pray for, talk with, and try and win over older friends and family members. Their reward has not shrunk. Now some would say, and it probably has some relevance, I didn't teach it on this way, that Jesus here is disciplining uh, Peter Because Peter was one of the apostles. He's one of the first followers of Christ, right? And so Peter's looking and saying, man, I'm kind of on a team here, right? And so am I, I, you know, going to gain more because I'm I'm one of the first, right? And Jesus here is teaching him about the nature of the kingdom of God. And he's pushing back on that idea of my, my, my merit, my position, my length of time in service has anything to do with this reward. With your reward. You see, Timothy in the scriptures was said to have been had to have known the scriptures at infant at infancy. And then you also see the thief on the cross who knew Christ but for a moment. You see, when somebody comes to Christ, the reward is full. The reward is complete. And this is why the gospel is so scandalous. 
But this is why the gospel is so wonderful. Now, I have a specific person that I thought about when, in this uh, specific category of people. I didn't, I'm not going to call out anybody in here. Maybe I should call out Austin Baker because he's not here again. Hey, Austin, I know you're going to listen to this. Um, so, but I have a, uh, I thought of the people. The people who think, man, there's so much guilt in my life. There's so much shame. I'm so undeserving. I'm so unworthy. Right? This fact right here, listen to this. This is your hope. Now, I've never actually gone to a place and hired a day worker, but I would imagine if I did, I would look at the people, the selection of people. I'd figure out who seemed to be most qualified uh, to do the job that I'm asking him to do, and I would pick him up. Now, if you were not one of the first workers selected, you could imagine the desperation that the laborers were going or were feeling when they weren't selected. Now, these, these, are, these laborers, they need to work to eat, right? They ain't got a savings account, right? So as people are constantly picked over them, right, you can imagine the desperation. You can imagine the worthlessness that these workers felt as they were getting picked over and over and over and over. You see what's so cool is that Jesus comes out to the 11th hour guys. It's 5 p.m. The work day's over. They even say, uh, Jesus says to them when he gets there, he says, hey, why are you guys idle? What are you doing? Why are you still here? And you can just listen. Listen to this intimate response. You probably never thought it was intimate before now. No one hired him. No one hired him. Can't we all relate to this? This level of shame and guilt is universal. But listen to the words of Jesus. He says, hey, you, you go into the vineyard too. It's a picture of the fact that we are brought into the kingdom of God, not because we are superior workers, not because we have of anything that we have done, but this whole picture of Jesus going out at all times and gathering workers is a picture of the immense grace of God. You are unworthy of God's love. You are, just as I am unworthy of God's love. But yet, because of his matchless grace, he saves us anyway. So what do you do with those feelings of unworthiness? You confess them. You confess your unworthiness. You confess the specific things that make you feel unworthy. You confess the sins of which that unworthiness springs and you admit them to God. You confess them. He doesn't reject you from your sin, but rather he saves you from your sin. This is the gospel. While we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. That's the message of God's love. Your acceptance with God is not based on your own unworthiness. It's based on the worthiness of Christ. His perfect righteousness and his perfect love, come to Christ and have your unworthiness ended. Come to Christ and have that shame removed. Come to Christ and know the grace of God. There's a hymn, and I stole this, but I, think, I thought it was really great. There's a hymn that uh, is titled, uh, Come Ye Sinners. And I want to read uh, the, the main part. It says this. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. 
Come ye thirsty, come and welcome. God's free bounty glorify. True belief and true repentance, every grace that brings you nigh. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. Now listen to this. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Whether young or old, whether rich or poor, whatever your past is, one of absolute debauchery and guilt-ridden shame that you have accounted onto your life, or one of just utmost self-righteousness, come to the kingdom where every man is paid equally. The third and final point. The kingdom pays on God's radical generosity. The kingdom of heaven does not pay on man's perception of fairness. Praise be to God. We are rewarded in the kingdom, not on our work ethic, not on our deeds, not on our time spent, but we are rewarded because of God's radical generosity. This is what we see in verses 9 through 15. The 11th hour workers received a full denarius. And the people who were hired first, because they were working in the, day, in the heat of the day, they expected to receive more. But they ended up receiving the same, a denarius. And they began to grumble against the landowner. They believed that they had been treated unfairly. And uh, I found this quote, which is awesome, in a book titled War on Words by a guy named Ted Tripp. Never heard of it, never read the book. Um, But he says this about communication. He says, most of our word problems are really perception problems. We perceive wrongly, so therefore we speak wrongly. You see, the folks who went out first, these folks perceive that there has been some sort of injustice done to them, so they wrongly speak to the landowner as to though they had been mistreated. So what did they miss? They believed that in the kingdom of heaven, in the vineyard, that their own labors merited them more. You see, the natural language of fallen man is this. It's one of law. It's one of works righteousness. It's the language of deserving. But this is not the language of the kingdom of heaven. The language of the vineyard is not works, but grace. Not earning, but generosity. Now, I don't know about you, but I've had a lot of friends who have studied abroad and went there to go learn a language. And in the process of becoming truly fluent in, in learning a language, there's this intermediate step, okay? So there's, hey, I don't know a language, like a.k.a. Matt Van Zant, And then there's this middle spot, uh, there's this middle spot of, well, I can, I can hear, I, I, can, I can think in my own head in my native language, and then I can speak to you in my new language. But there's that, there's that process in the middle there of going, well, I have to run it through my own mind in my native language to translate it into the new language. But what people would say, in order to be truly fluent in something, is when you begin to think and dream in the new language. And so we are no different as Christians. We think and we speak in the language of law. We think and we speak in the language of deserving. We think that God owes us something for our goodness. 
But when we come into the kingdom of God, he begins to speak a new language to us. And that's the language of grace and generosity. We have to learn to think in that language as well as to speak in that language. And that is what God begins to show us in verse 13 when he says to the first hour guys, he says, friend, I'm not unfair to you. I gave you exactly what we agreed on. That, this is how generosity works. Hey, take your pay and go. But I want to give to the man that is hired last the same that I gave to you. He's a worker. He's got needs. I want to be generous to him. Don't I have the right to do that with my own money? What right do we have to contend with God? He's the ruler and owner of all things. What he's marvelously chosen to do with all those who come into his kingdom, who will work in his vineyard and, and receive his pay, is to distribute his pay based on his generosity, based upon his grace. This is how the first will become last, and the last will become first. The playing field in the kingdom of heaven is leveled. Our ability to work in the vineyard is all about God's grace. How liberating is this? How freeing is this? How secured, securing is this? How encouraging is this? How kind of God to bless us in his kingdom. Not in our own works, but in something as priceless and unchanging and sufficient as his own son. So now we come full circle back to our, those questions. What are you giving your life to? What payoff are you hoping for? You see, give your life to following Christ and serving Him in His kingdom and your reward is unmatched. Be careful of what you devote yourself to. Be careful Jeremiah says that the heart is wicked and deceitful. Be careful, because even good things, family, work, church, that you can devote yourself to, if done apart from the kingdom, apart from the landlord, it is just, it's just as though you're in the street idle. There's no pay. Scriptures say that ultimately the judgment of God, that all these things will burn up and it will vanish with your memory. So I have a couple calls that I have to just different groups of people, just like I did last time. I love doing this. But to the non-Christians in the room, if there are any in here, don't be idle. Your life is nothing after death. Hear the Savior's call to enter his vineyard. When you look at the cross, remember this call. Understand the payment he is making on your behalf. Understand the debt he is paying because of your sin and mine. And there is a love and a grace that flows through him to all who those who turn to him in faith. Don't let the reality that up to this point in your life you haven't served him or your life has been full of failures and sin, don't let those rob you of the sweet pleasures of knowing him now 
Don't serve Satan another day. Don't serve him another moment of your life. Why work for such a harsh taskmaster who promises much and never pays? Many of you will be proud of this, but this reference. But just like young Edward in the Chronicles of Narnia, whom the witch promised the taste of Turkish delight, he ate that Turkish delight and it was sweet to his mouth, but it was bitter to his stomach and it almost killed him. Heed to the word of God. Come into the kingdom. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. There is no sin that is impediment to his grace. Come to the Lord Jesus and have your life rewarded. Come and receive his pay of eternal life and everlasting love. Today is the day of salvation. To my Christian brothers and sisters in here, this is just a word of reminder to you. This is already your life. All that Christ has purchased is already yours. The forgiveness, the reconciliation, the peace, the mercy, the love of God, the sanctification, the glorification, the adoption, all that is in Christ is yours. Live in it. Rejoice in it. Labor in it. Love the pay that comes with this Savior. Delight in Him. The kingdom of heaven pays richly. Amen. And then lastly, specifically to my brothers and sisters here at Sojourn Galleria, you guys have been laboring and sacrificing for over a year here, and you've been a thing for almost two years. Many of you have had expectations and dreams. To this family, hear this. Your labor is not in vain. There's only one time when working in a vineyard, in working in a vineyard, when life is celebratory, and that is at the harvest. The rest of the year, the work is suffering. It's hard. Remember, the vineyard is the Lord's vineyard. He will bring about the harvest. Our job is to faithfully work in his vineyard. But don't worry. The day of celebration is coming. Where wine will abound. Trust him. So in conclusion, live for something beyond this life. Devote yourself to something beyond this life. Live for someone who himself does not die and gives eternal life. Work in his vineyard where your work won't burn in the judgment. Work in his vineyard where your work will endure for, will endure for eternity. Sojourn Galleria, your inheritance is rich. Press on with hope.